Welcome to the MetPro Method Podcast. I'm your host, Crystal O'Keefe. Today, I am joined by MetPro founder, Angelo Poli. Angelo, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me back, Crystal. It is always a pleasure. I agree. It is always a pleasure. We are going to be talking about the research that we've been going through. So today is the last installment of our four-part mini-series summarizing the research that MetPro has completed recently. So far, we've discussed calorie restriction, carbohydrate restriction, and the effects on body composition. But today, we're talking about nutritional periodization and metabolic adaptation. So that's a mouthful. Angelo, I'll just let you jump in. (laughs) So this one is the culmination. So we looked at calories, carbs, exercise. We got a whole bunch of data from a bunch of different research papers and trials that we've looked at. Now, what does it all mean? Well, there's one more piece. So let's dive in. And first, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what nutritional periodization actually is. You've heard of it. All of our listeners have heard of it. They just didn't realize that they were hearing about it. Um, And it pops up everywhere. There's going to be a little more reading in this because there's a bunch of important excerpts. Okay. Researchers have recently increased their attention to the effects of nutritional periodization, especially as metabolic research has increased. The term nutritional periodization might not be as recognizable as keto, calorie counting, etc. But... Its core tenets are found in everything from sports nutrition to intermittent fasting. So I'll give you an example now. In sports nutrition, athletes will plan ahead and change their food consumption based on the sport they're playing, their on-season, off-season, volume of training, intensity, etc. Bodybuilders, they're known for this. They'll make drastic changes, additions or subtractions based on whether they're on a bulking cycle or a cutting cycle, these can last weeks or months. Now, many popular diets that have nothing to do with sports nutrition also advocate, example, certain days of the week to be higher or lower calorie or carb. And lots of variations on intermittent fasting. In fact, some promote complete abstinence on some days versus others or or a stark contrast. So this concept of nutritional periodization, which is varying your intake, is not foreign. Right. Unfortunately, the research behind it, for most people, it is. So that's what we're going to look at. Okay. So here's a few benchmark studies. In one study, there was 1,429 participants from the National Weight Control Registry. They examined whether long-term weight loss maintenance is enhanced by maintaining the same diet regimen across the week or by dieting more strictly on weekdays than at other times. So, in other words, you have one that's saying, okay, I'm dieting strictly during the week and then looser on the weekend and another is consistent across the board. Okay. The results were a linear relationship between dieting consistency and smaller weight gains. Weight loss registry, this is going to be a group of many, many people using many, many different approaches. So the aggregate of the data, however, is very telling. And here's what it showed. Participants who reported a consistent diet across the week were one and a half times more likely to maintain their weight loss. Hmm. 
This study indicates that from a behavioral standpoint, consistently is positively correlated to weight loss maintenance. We consistent have, is better is what we're hearing. Consistent absolutely seems to improve the outcomes, particularly behaviorally, and that absolutely mirrors what we see with our clients day in and day out. In fact, there's a lot of interesting, even science-based approaches out there, but because they change so much, so often, some meal plans are high-carb days, low-carb days. The problem is what we find is adherence and specificity fall off, kind of blunts it because it's not as sharp. They're not as consistent with getting that exact amount of grams, calories, carbs, etc. And so it mutes the effect of the science that was there. Now, in a more granular evaluation of active dieting, 150 overweight and obese non-smokers were assigned to one of two groups. The first group was given intermittent calorie restriction, standardized as the 5-2 diet. The second group was given continuous calorie restriction. Both groups used a total net energy deficit of 20%. That's why I selected this particular research paper because the trial was set up well. In other words, you didn't have people that, well, everyone's on the same diet, but they're all actually eating different things. Yeah. With this, the net deficit was similar. At the follow-up assessment, the results were similar. Again, we could have told you that that's to be expected with our observations day in and day out with people. And so the research concluded that this could indicate that total restriction was more influential than time. So it doesn't mean that restricting a couple of days a week won't result in weight loss, but it does not result in more than the same restriction spread out, or as we know, basic calorie restriction. Okay. Another research piece here, and it's called The Role of Intermittent Fasting and Meal Timing, Weight Management, and Metabolic Health. Researchers evaluated several studies. The analysis considered multiple facets of intermittent fasting, such as fasts of various lengths, with a defining characteristic being the confinement of energy restriction to a specified window, whether 16 hours a day, every other day, or just two days a week, all different types. The analysis noted that intermittent fasting can elicit restrictions in body mass, which appear broadly comparable to standard daily energy restriction. So the natural next question is, well, not all intermittent fasting approaches are created equal. There's more dramatic and different types. So this study in particular looked at all the different types. And what they found is that overall, results were basically comparable to standard across the board energy restriction. So studies suggest results are similar between approaches to energy restriction. And this raises the question, does the method matter to achieve energy deficit? Indeed, the difficulty is in maintaining weight loss, even more so than losing weight. The difficulty is in maintaining that as everybody listening is shaking their head yeah. off. So now we're going to get into some of the nerdy stuff. So hold on. All right. (laughs) I'll try and put it into layman's terms as best as I can, but this is fascinating info. So bear with me. In a study evaluating models of energy homeostasis, the energy expenditure 
EE, and 17 obese inpatient subjects were studied at three intervals at their usual weight. Subjects after 10% weight loss, and then again after 20% weight loss. This study I selected because this was a controlled method where they were literally on liquid diets. So this is exactly what they were eating. The results at 10% weight loss showed that resting and non-resting energy expenditure were significantly below those predicted on the basis of the amount and composition of weight loss. So I'm going to pause there. So that's BMR or REE and those terminologies both refer to your resting energy expenditure or base metabolism at both intervals. Expenditure was significantly, not, not marginally, but significantly below expected. And that's what all the new research is showing. So expect it to be below the expected. It's because what is happening is the industry is changing its understanding right. of how dieting affects our metabolism. It's not simple matter of, oh, yeah, if you're 10% lighter, you burn 10% less calories. No. In fact, it's, it's the opposite of that. You have no idea because everybody's different. There is almost no limit to the spitefulness of our metabolism and its ability. But the thing is, its ability to keep us alive and adapt to changes in our intake. Very efficient. So continuing on with this study. It indicated that dieters can expect metabolic slowing beyond what can be accounted for by changes in body mass. Following an additional 10% weight loss to a total of 20%, that's significant, further declines in REE, it's resting energy intake, were consistent with a threshold model. No change with further weight loss. I'm going to come back to that. While the disproportionate decline in non-resting energy expenditure in REE was largely reflective of the degree of weight loss, the inference is that REE will only drop so far, threshold model, but further adaptive efficiencies take place in physical activity following greater weight loss. In other words, the body finds a way to be more efficient and burn less energy for activities under these conditions. So I'm going to try and break down probably the most technical study of this whole bunch. Okay. So what the researchers are finding is when someone starts dieting, restricting any approach to diet or restriction, here is how the body responds. There's a twofold mechanic. On one side, there is a progressive tightening of efficiency in how your body expends energy during activity, exercise, or even just active daily living. And the longer you diet, the more weight you've lost, or the more dramatic the diet, over time, it gradually becomes greater and greater. Those efficiencies are greater and greater. And that's why I get on the treadmill and it says I burn 450 calories. But why aren't I losing weight according to the math? Well, this is why. The treadmill's lying. Your whoop is lying. Your aura is lying. Your Fitbit is lying. <laughs> it's, these are great tools. I use them. I love them. It's just that they cannot. The technology cannot 
perceive what phase of adaptive thermogenesis you are in, how long you've been in kind of that power down mode where your body is trying to become more efficient to re-grasp that homeostasis. So that's kind of what we would have imagined. The longer you diet, the harder you diet gradually, the more weight loss you lose, the slower your metabolic rate during exercise or activity. We know that. But there's this other component that's directly tied to our BMR or REE, resting energy intake. And it is not progressive. It's not a dial. It's a switch. It's either on or off, basically. Okay. And what happens is the moment you start dieting, basically it hits the deck. It doesn't take months and months. It's just your base metabolic functions and expenditures drop out. They just fall, but they can only fall so far. They don't keep going months and years later. They drop so far. And then as long as the dieting persists, you stay there. Why? Because it still takes a baseline of energy to fuel your brain, your heart, your vital organs. So that can't go down any farther. But that's why it seems like, boy, you start dieting and it's just hit with almost this, you know, wicked response of like clamping down. That's that RMR, BMR, the bottom dropping out. And then there's this element that persists over time beyond that that's what the data is showing and it's unfortunate but satisfying to see it in the print and the literature and the research because this is what we have been observing with clients for decades precisely this it's a very important point because so many people will say, just tell me what to eat and just tell me what workout to do. And this is in a nutshell why it has to be dialed into each person, because yep. it's not that simple. There's not one formula for everybody. And why it changes, right. because what works today, your body is hardwired to acclimate to. So it's going to have to adjust. Exactly. That, that's it. Now, I included another study that is observing the exact same mechanic, mm -hmm. but from a hormonal standpoint. So here's what this one said. Approaching the, the question from a slightly different angle, another group of researchers embarked on a detailed breakdown of the process of adaptive thermogenesis. Again, this specifically refers to the sum of components that contribute to the unexplained adaptation restriction that cannot be accounted for by weight loss, fat loss, or muscle. The data relates adaptive thermogenesis to two different set points with a settling between them. In early weight loss, the first set is related to depleted glycogen stores when adaptive thermogenesis begins to meet the brain's energy needs. Then, during maintenance of reduced weight, the second set relates to decreased leptin levels, keeping energy expenditure low to prevent triglyceride stores getting too low, which is a risk to some basic biological functions such as reproduction, etc. So same exact paralleling scenario. Now you add to it that at the same time, there's a hormonal mechanic that mirrors this protection uh, protocol that's basically built into our body. When our glycogen stores are depleted, it quickly adjusts. And then over time, to make sure triglycerides don't deplete too far, leptin levels adjust. And that that's the hormone that absolutely affects 
appetite and our metabolism and all of those things that if done any research on it, it is true, it, it impacts. Okay. So what does this all mean? I'm going to read this next sentence twice. <laughs> if these concepts around metabolic adaptation are to be accepted, a clear goal is to reduce body weight with less adaptation using all sources within our control. If somebody were to ask me, what is the difference between what we do at MetPro with a calculated approach to weight loss and any other approach? That statement right there is the difference. Fundamentally, it all comes back to we base everything off of this fundamental core tenant. If the concepts around metabolic adaptation are accepted, the clear goal is to reduce body weight with less adaptation. And that has to be the approach because I've had other very well-educated individuals in the field recognize, yes, there is adaptive thermogenesis. Yes, this happens, but they don't give it the credit, the degree that frankly, now the research is coming out and exposing. So if you're listening to this at home and you've ever said the words, I'm confused. I thought I was eating everything right. Why aren't I losing more weight? If you've ever said that, this is why. That metabolism, absolutely. And the casual dieter, the person who's trying to lose three pounds, is never going to experience or see this. This is going to be for that person who has weight has crept up and for weeks, months, or years battled with how do I keep it down without you know, icing my entire life. This is what people are experiencing. This is why we have so much empathy because it's not always a matter of someone's going AWOL with their choices and their lifestyles ridiculous. We're being honest, we all have our moments, but there's hardcore scientific metabolic explanations for why weight loss can be so elusive. But there's good news. I was like, well, this all sounds very depressing. Where are we going, <laughs> Angelo? <laughs> but that's why we seek to understand it. Because when we understand it, then we can actually chart a path to success. So we got a little more research to go through. I'm going to kind of rapid fire in this. Another study focused on calorie restriction and its effects on resting metabolic rate. Dieters were split into two groups. One restricted 25% of their energy via diet, and the other restricted just 12.5%, but then increased exercise activity enough to burn another 12.5%. So the net difference was the same, 25%. RMR measurements were collected at the start of the study at three months and at six months. Researchers concluded RMR adapted or decreased beyond values expected from changes in weight and body composition as a result of energy deficit through food, 25% restriction, after three months. Now, based on all the other research, it actually can happen much sooner, but we're talking significant adaptation. This is consistent with the aforementioned studies. Additionally, RMR decreased beyond expected values for the half and half group too, but it was at six months. That's a big difference. That is a big difference. So this delta leaves the door open to metabolic optimization between approaches. 
while we have to recognize that it happened with both groups. It's like, oh, that's it. Perfect. I just exercise and reduce a little bit and everything's going to be roses and cherries. No, that survival mechanic still going to kick in. But when it comes in combination, that's where we get these scales of efficiency, these multipliers on efficiency, where now it's going to take your body exponentially longer to adapt. So that goes back to our last session where we talked about benefits of exercise. It's hidden inside the research. There are benefits even beyond what the average person are going to realize in the short run. So here's another study. The findings of the previous study are consistent with observations and a meta-analysis of diet and diet plus exercise programs on resting metabolic rate. Studies indicated, and this was a meta-analysis, so looking at a body of work, contrary to what is reported in narrative reviews, RMR decreased significantly in both diet and diet plus exercise programs, which is what the previous study just said. The drop with diet only, however, was significantly greater than with diet plus exercise. In conclusion, the addition of exercise to dietary restriction appeared to prevent some of the decrease in RMR. So there's ways to optimize that process. Okay, that is good news. Though varied intakes affect RMR, there is some basis to be optimistic that metabolic recovery can occur after a period of dieting. Now, this is fascinating. So if anyone is familiar with the competition scene, physique competitors, bodybuilders, etc., I was involved with that years ago. Here's an interesting study that absolutely mirrors what we would see in the trenches with our clients and with our competitors. This study evaluated a female physique athlete's RMR baseline while at 20.3% body fat. And then again, after two competition prep cycles that reduced body fat to 12.2% and then down to a low of 11.6%. The results will surprise you. Her RMR decreased from 1,345 calories a day to a low value of 1,119 calories between competitions. But by the end of her recovery, her RMR increased to 1,435, which was actually above her baseline. That means, at least in the case of this athlete, she was able to endure that drop in RMR while she went through a dieting cycle. She was dieting and she was dieting hard because she went from 20% body fat to 11% body fat, but then not only recover, but improve upon her baseline. In the industry with high level athletes and just with average people that are consistent, we have experienced and witnessed this over and over and over again. But it it takes some effort and some consistency and some planning. And it's not a three-day, a 72-hour sprint. This is a whole strategy. But you can absolutely increase. Now, for some of the physiologists listening and personal trainers listening, there are some technical details in this study that might fascinate you. It doesn't change any of the overarching themes, but note this. The study indicates it is possible, at least uh, in the case of an exceptional athlete, to recover RMR 
or even improve it. Of special note in this study, RMR decreased by over 200 calories a day. That's a big hit. Yeah. We'll get to the nuances of why. Like 200 calories, it doesn't seem that big when it's your base metabolic rate and it's every day. It's a big hit. But this occurred without without any loss in muscle. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Wow. It's not intuitive because what a trainer is already saying, well, you build muscle and it'll speed your metabolic rate. And that is true. Here's the facts with this evaluation. When the athlete's RMR was at its lowest, her muscle mass was actually 1.2 kilograms higher relative to pre-diet levels. So what does that mean? This would suggest the best single predictor of RMR in female athletes is intake. In other words, a person's total fuel consumption may be more influential than total fat-free mass in some circumstances. That's their words. Now I'm going to give you my words. Okay. Your total intake is more influential. Every experience I've had, 21 years in the industry, thousands and thousands and thousands of clients, diet ed training, your what your intake is absolutely the most dominant reference point for where your metabolism is that does not mean muscle doesn't speed your metabolism it does it is one of the most influential factors but it is always secondary to your intake case in point i can't tell you how many ex nfl guys have dieted they all have a similar story Angelo, after I got out of the NFL and I wasn't training for six hours a day, I still kept up my eating habits. Yeah, I would think that's hard for any athlete, any athlete at that level. Sure. Absolutely. So now here are these ex defensive ends, linebackers, linemen I've worked with. All right. These guys, are they lacking muscle? No. Nah. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> no. These guys have tons of muscle. These guys are brutes. If all that muscle is just stoking the metabolism, a better way to look at it, and I'm giving you more of a hyperbole here, so don't take this as technical absolute. This is more of a hyperbole, but it's a better way of looking at it, is the pursuit of muscle speeds your metabolism, and the owning of muscle enhances your capacity for a high metabolic rate. But that still has to be under the right circumstances, because if you starve your body, your body will find a way, muscle or not, to stay alive, therefore adaptive thermogenesis. Wow. And that's what the that's what the research now is finally painting a full picture for us to see before we had snippets and a lot of these research pieces they still do and with more research is needed <laughs> because we're finding something that's not quite adding up here's what we're finding the two elements that seem to contradict can exist in tandem when we understand that there is simply a ranking a hierarchy of how your body prioritizes things Broadening this perspective, the following study offered the viewpoint that homeostatic regulation of body weight is more effective when energy intake and expenditure are both high. Now, this was a study that I loved what the study taught us, 
but the researchers' personal conclusions were a little sideways. Homeostatic regulation of body weight is more effective when energy intake and expenditure are both high. And they refer to that as high energy flux. So what that means is that you're eating a lot and you're moving a lot. We'll leave it at that. You're, You're expending and you're taking in more. Uh, And that implies that low energy flux, eating little, moving little, (laughs) should predict weight gain. Interestingly, results indicated that low energy flux, that is low levels of habitual caloric intake coupled with low levels of energy expenditure, predicted future body fat gain. Hmm. Predicted future body fat gain. Interesting. So moving little, eating little, you can still gain weight future if you eat little today but because you're eating little you're not you don't have the energy you don't feel the motivation to exercise that may still prevent you from weight gains today but the research indicates that that almost always predicted over time weight gain meanwhile there was an inverse relationship between energy flux and future body fat gain and association between energy flux and rmr which means that the opposite when they found that someone was taking in a lot of fuel but was highly active and these are people that were not gaining or losing weight these are people in weight maintenance it predicted little weight gain in the future. They were much more successful at maintaining their weight over time, over years. That's what this research shows. Hmm. So at the end of the day, this mirrors exactly what we have experienced at MetPro, what we have experienced working in the trenches day in and day out with different people with different metabolisms over longer periods of time. We have observed who maintains the weight loss the best. People that are constantly and longest term most aggressively dieting? No, it's the ones where we've been able to help them condition their metabolic rate higher to where they can eat more fuel ongoing without gaining weight, which is why periodization. Okay. We have different phases. We're getting there. All right, moving right along here. The researchers suggested that weight loss might be more attainable via high physical activity that is coupled with high energy intake rather than subscribing to commonly prescribed low-calorie diets. That's the part where they did good research, but unfortunately, every other research paper we've ever read and our personal experience has always shown that while that's true, that it's predictive of future weight gain or weight loss, you're not just going to exercise and lose significant weight. We've all tried it. It doesn't work like that. You have to have the diet along with it. So, So the note here is while practical limits to this theory exist, it aligns with the conclusion that was again demonstrated in a study of young adult men, which illustrates that increased intake or overfeeding can have significant impact on total daily energy expenditure particularly when paired with exercise or increased activity. In this study, they took a small group of young, healthy men, and they measured their energy expenditure, and then they had them eat more and more and more. You know what happened? (laughs) Their metabolism went up. 
it went up. Yep. So we're learning something here about how the body works. So that's homeostatic, that regulating factor that causes our metabolism to decrease when there's less fuel causes it to increase when there's more fuel, which that now the outline of a strategy now becomes a little clearer. So it's difficult to look at the totality of this research and conclude that weight loss is going to be consistently produced without energy restriction. You have to have energy restriction. Sure. Looking at the totality. However, it can't be ignored <clears throat> that energy restriction has negative effects on RMR and regulating hormones. It has negative effect on regulating hormones such as leptin and ghrelin, etc. Meanwhile, energy increases are often associated with reversals or even improvements in RMR. So studies suggest that dietary interventions should be individualized around the most important factors. So here's our bullets. Okay. Number one, and this goes back to uh, the very first research in calorie restriction, et cetera, include protein sufficient to maintain fat-free mass and increase muscle mass in ideal circumstances. So even though, yes, it turns out total intake is more influential than other factors, having extra muscle is still good. Second, ensure energy is sufficient for maintaining NREE and in ideal circumstances, increase activity. So it's tempting to go, well, I'll just diet harder even though I don't have enough energy to recover, I just won't exercise and I'll just diet. Please don't do that. <laughs> if you have the ability to exercise, if you are physically healthy enough to do any level of activity, the research is clear. The outcomes, the long-term outcomes are clearly better when exercise is part of your routine. Next bullet point. Restrictions should not exceed what's necessary for weight loss or fat loss. Research indicates this threshold has significant individual variance and is affected by your heredity, by your body type, somatotype, current and previous levels of adaptive thermogenesis, how much muscle mass you have, how much activity you do, how much you exercise, what we refer to as NEAT. It's affected by current hormone levels, ghrelin, leptin, exercise. There are so many moving parts. You can't ask the question, well, just give me the one diet that works for weight loss for everyone. It doesn't exist. It's a moving train, yeah. you know? How fast do I have to, how fast do I have to ride the horse to hop onto the moving train? Well, you have to know how fast the train is going first, right? <laughs> yeah. Restrictions should not exceed what's necessary for weight loss or fat loss. And I'm going to say this is the number one conversation that our coaches have with our clients out of the gate because it, it stands to reason, oh, you've given me plenty of food to eat and look, I'm losing weight. Well, great. I don't even need this much food. I'm satisfied. I'll eat less and lose weight even faster. Yep. Now we know why your coach says, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Not yet. Trust me, your body is masterful at figuring out how to slow your metabolism. Wait for that to happen first so you have more options. Then we can cut a little more, adjust a little more. It'll happen soon enough. If you cut more faster, sooner, 
you'll lose the next three pounds faster, but it'll could potentially prevent you from or create obstacles from you getting to the next 20 pounds. That's a scenario that have at it. If you only have three pounds to lose, you go for it. You can do a sprint. That's great. It'll take you two, three days. Your metabolism is going to recover from that. If you have 15, 20, 30 more pounds to lose, you cannot look at it like a sprint because at the end of the day, it's not what you achieve on the scale. You look at the scale, you're going to see a number. That number doesn't matter. Let me tell you the number that matters. Your BMR your RMR, your total daily energy expenditure, your metabolism. Because regardless of what the scale says, if your metabolic rate is running low, that number is going to go up over time. And regardless of what the scale says, even if you're not super happy with that number today, if your metabolism is healthy, over time, the number will creep in the direction you want. Your metabolism is key. Next bullet, ongoing intervention should include periods, of increased energy intake, refeeding, in conjunction with increased exercise to defend against metabolic adaption. So what does that mean? Well, in the context of how we would work with a client, what that means is we evaluate intake versus weight loss pace, and we determine how much farther someone can go before they're going to plateau. And we'll ride them up to a plateau, but at a certain point, when we perceive diminishing returns, not complete plateau, but just diminishing returns, we're going to pause and we have established you can refresh your metabolic rate. The problem is that's the most technical piece. Most people go, well, I got to eat more. Great. Okay. I'll have a piece of chocolate cake with every meal. It doesn't work like that. (laughs) Well, it will speed your metabolism, but then you just gain all the weight back in the meantime. Yeah. That's that's the challenging part. It's what you eat as you add that food back. (laughs) That's right. But you can do it faster than you think. This isn't months and months. This is weeks and weeks. This takes a few weeks, but it doesn't take months or years to reset your metabolism. Now, I'm going to shock you with what I'm going to tell you next. People say, well, what do you do, Angela? How do you deal with that scenario? You know what I make my client do? It's the last thing you'd guess. What? I make them gain weight. What? I'm going to give you an asterisk on that. Okay. When we think of weight gain outside of this research, what hits our mind? Well, we're gaining body fat. I'm getting heavier. I'm gaining fat. Weight gain comes in multiple shapes and sizes. Just because you gain weight doesn't mean you have to gain body fat if you're doing what type of exercise? Weightlifting. That's it. Now we're coming full circle back to why there are so many arrows pointing back to weightlifting. While it's not the most direct, okay, I'm going to go lift some weights. I'm not going to wake up tomorrow five pounds lighter. In the context of regulating, resetting your metabolism, now I have a situation where I have to get someone used to eating more. Because I'm going to do it in a way that will cause their metabolism to adapt and acclimate to that increase over time, I'm going to be able to keep them to a one to two pound weight gain. But even that one to two pounds, I'm going to make sure it's not body fat. Now's the time where I'm going to add in maybe a little more resistance training. So if they do have to gain in response to the increased intake, it goes to lean mass. And this is where it gets fun because you can even control to a degree where on the body that goes based on the type of resistance training you're doing. So this is the fun part. Few weeks of that, your metabolic rate is recovered. Then you can go for round two, lose more body weight, lose more body fat, 
So ongoing interventions should include planned, I'm adding the word planned to the research periods of increased intake. And it is not a, okay, you've done this 14 days and you automatically do that. It should never be like that. It has to be reactive to how your body is responding because no two people are going to hit that threshold of when they should switch cycles at the exact same time. Boy, isn't that the truth? Correct. Second to the last bullet, include resistance training to maintain or minimize loss of fat-free mass. So even if you're doing a dominantly cardiovascular schedule, include just a little resistance training, even if that's not your jam. Include enough to where it's hard for your body to let go of the muscle mass while you're dieting and or training. And finally, include aerobic exercise to increase total energy expenditure. And now here's the point people miss and reduce the magnitude of calorie restriction or energy restriction required for weight loss. So in other words, instead of having to cut 500 calories, can you cut 300 calories and do 200 in exercise? Science is very clear. The research is very clear. Will that cause you to lose more weight in one week? Probably not. What will happen, though, three weeks from now, when your body's starting to plateau, the person who's doing the combo is going to get more mileage out of it. Therefore, will likely lose more total pounds, will have less adaptive thermogenesis impacting their RMR, their NREE. They'll have less of those switches to the hormones, to the ghrelin, to the leptin, to the glycogen, all of these things that your body does to protect that it responds when it perceives restriction will be slightly lessened, which means your outcome is always going to be better. And so here's the recap. Exercise appears broadly to be correlated with dose. More specifically, increased aerobics contributes to short-term increases in energy expenditure, while resistance training is associated with maintenance of muscle and preserves, has a preserving effect overall on RMR values. It still appears there remains a threshold response to adaptive thermogenesis that will resist RMR maintenance even with muscle, but it helps. It helps. Increased energy intake or refeeding is associated with increased resting energy expenditure and total energy expenditure, especially when paired with exercise. In addition, high energy intake combined with high energy expenditure is positively linked to homeostatic maintenance. In other words, not gaining weight over the long term when compared to low energy intake and low exercise or activity. Combined, this evidence provides a strong argument for nutritional periodization and planned metabolic recovery times. Designed to attenuate periods of weight loss, particularly extended periods, and especially for weight loss maintenance. For weight loss maintenance, which is undeniably through research and through just everyone's life experience, the hardest component to weight loss. Absolutely. So 
what's the MetPro data? So we've been concluding each of these segments with our data, and this was actually the largest research study we conducted. And this was a retrospective analysis. We looked at 240. They were overweight or obese, adult females and males. And it was a good split. There was 128 females and 112 males. So this is really good balanced data. Ages were 25 to 75 years of age. Good split, 50 year split. Everyone that we looked at retrospectively had a BMI that started over 25. Okay. Participants were coached in the MetPro multidisciplinary approach for over one year to qualify. And to qualify for the analysis, they had to be actively engaged data tracking for at least one year. So this is good quality data. And so here's the results. After six months, the average weight loss was 9.07 kilograms or approximately 20 pounds. Again, I tell people with any research study, look at, don't look at total weight. That's more a factor of the demographic they're working with as far as are they tall people, short people. Look at long-term results and percentages. So that equated to approximately 10% body weight. Okay. That's the average. At the end of one year, weight regain had not occurred. And that is, if you ask me what my, what's the, your claim to fame, that's it. It's not the pounds lost. Because let me tell you a secret. There's no, you can eat less, you lose weight. There's no, no special sauce to that. How do you fix your metabolism so you don't immediately gain it back? Because you're not going to eat less forever, nor should you desire that. That's a miserable existence. Absolutely. So there was no weight regain at the one-year mark. In fact, during the time period typically associated weight regain, data showed an additional weight loss to 14% among the top 25% of participants. And I'll explain that a little. Some people have more weight to lose than others. Some people are bigger than others. And some people are more dedicated than others. Additionally, their interquartile range between results increased as time increases. What that shows is that outcomes among the middle 50% increased from 4% at three months to 6% at six months and expands to 10% at 12 months, which basically, why is that important? The bell curve. Most weight loss, when you graph it, it looks like this. <laughs> and if you see, I'm a sharp spike and then drop, or I guess it would be reverse, drop and then gain. Right. right. What we're looking for is to smooth out the bell curve. We don't want that sharp regain. And that's what the data is showing. Most diet interventions result in an initial period of weight loss, typically lasting 10 to 20 weeks. Now, I want to give a disclaimer here. Again, when you're looking at research, you want to do so understanding what you're looking at. So I'm not talking about your neighbor who went and got the latest diet book or read online the latest trend. That's just a disaster across the board. They're going to lose weight for five days and they're going to gain it right back. We're talking about clinically overseen successful studies are showing that most diet interventions result in a period of weight loss typically lasting 10 to 20 weeks. However, that period is followed by a period of weight regain. 
in nearly all cases. That last five to eight months is the most acute, but that weight regain, as we've all understand. <laughs> it happens. It keep going. <laughs> Some studies show these were the ones that were effective. Interventions are showing 33% to 50% weight regain. Oh. That's the effective ones. That's in optimistic cases, whereas in other cases, it's showing well over 66% weight regain. Even when evaluating several of the big name, okay, household name weight loss approaches for cardiac health, etc., researchers reinforced a key point. The healthiest diet is the one that is behaviorally sustainable and results in sustained weight loss. And that's why the value proposition that we propose to people is it does take a little more planning. It takes a little more focus and strategy to implement an approach that's going to cater to your metabolism and not just gamify how much can you restrict. Right. But actually taking a periodized sports nutrition approach to it, it is a little more work, but the outcome, the difference is permanence. Yeah. And I mean... That's awfully worth it. It really is. <laughs> because if you think back over these discussions we've had, one of the things that you talk about is regardless of whether or not it's carbohydrate restriction or calorie restriction, etc., the, the weight regain happens often. Right. And, and that, in fact, these studies consider people who don't lose any weight. That's considered a success. So I feel like, yeah, being able to not only lose weight, but keep it off. Yeah, that's amazing right there. And some people will cause themselves unnecessary pains because of artificial time constraints. Like, I want to lose just that last five pounds. It'll come. Do it the right way. If you sprint, and, and it depends, each person's metabolic rate and where they are in their cycles will dictate. And so that's why our coaches have these conversations with the clients. But at home, the kind of the, the weekend warrior dieter, it's so easy to fall into that trap of, well, I'm just going to, I can just skip another meal. I can just eat a, a little bit less. And you know why we do that? Because the next day we're lighter. It yeah. works. Yeah, absolutely. It happens. It, we, we do that. But there's a cost. There's a price to be paid for that. And what we find is it never sticks. It doesn't become permanent until we form those habits, those routines. So anyhow, that's metabolic advantages of a multidisciplinary approach to weight loss. And by the way, all of our research for these last four segments has been focused on people with a BMI that qualifies them as overweight or obese. But I can tell you from personal experience in the trenches, even if you're not in that category, but you have some body fat you'd like to lose, you have five pounds, 10 pounds you want to lose, or even just body composition you want to change, the same exact principles will apply. Absolutely. I can I can attest to that. I've seen it happen. It's amazing. <laughs> it really is. 
<laughs> Angelo, thank you so much for your time today and all of these four segments. Uh, I look forward to our next conversation. We haven't planned it yet, but I know it'll be amazing. <laughs> it'll be a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, that's all for this week. That's all for this four-part miniseries. You can find all the MetPro Method episodes anywhere you get podcasts, or you can go to metpro.co slash podcast. You can learn more about MetPro also at metpro.co. Please be sure to follow the show and rate and review. That lets other people know what to expect. And I'll be back next week. Until then, remember, consistency is key. Thank you.